Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, joining us, and we welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg uh, television worldwide, and particularly on the continent of Europe, the Ukraine National Bank Deputy Governor, Sergei Nikolaychuk, joins us now from his Ukraine. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us this morning. I want to stay on the financial right now. So many questions to ask you. What do you need as an institution, your economist, what do you need now from the Bank of International Settlements and the major central bankers such as Chairman Powell? What do they need to do to assist your nation? Thank you very much for inviting me and thank you very much for the globe for supporting Ukraine against this uh, Russian aggression. Uh, definitely uh, today's, uh, today we are very happy that uh, uh, major advanced countries and uh, also international financial organizations support us. And uh, also we try to do our best to impose as most harsh uh, sanctions to Russia in order to in order to uh, increase the cost of this invasion on uh, Ukraine. Uh, coming back to your question regarding BIS and the IMF, so far we tried to persuade the managers, the leaders of this uh, of this organization that uh, in the current environment uh, Russia cannot be allowed uh, to be the member of this uh, respected organization in the situation with where uh, with this uh, such military uh, military aggression and uh, direct invasion into the territory of Ukraine that's why we approached this organization with the request to uh, suspend the membership of uh, the Russia in uh, in uh, May in a financial organization of the world. Deputy Governor, do you know, are you aware of the IMF and whether it's helping the Russians understand the sanctions and work around the sanctions? Are they seeking advice from them? What's your interpretation of what's happening between those multilateral institutions at the moment and how they're actually working with Russia day by day? My understanding that at the current moment, so the uh, active cooperation between the international financial organization and uh, Russian financial institution is uh, suspended. We hope that uh, this, that is the only uh, first step. We hope that, uh, you know, in the current environment, uh, you know, the uh, membership of uh, Russian financial organization like Central Bank like Ministry of Finance and so on, so can cannot be uh, allowed it. So all this respected organi respected in the past organization like Central Bank of Russia. So nowadays they try to to you know to finance to support the terroristic uh, state, which we consider the Russian uh, state uh, uh, is now. So we don't think that in the current moment is uh, is reasonable to have any any operations, any relations with uh, uh, Russian authorities. Your country needs aid, sir. Deputy Governor, I'm just yes. wondering, we all see these numbers, huge numbers being thrown around. Have you got a read? Yeah. Have you done any studies on how much aid you actually need 
Do you have a number in mind of what you need right now? Uh, so far, we try to keep our financial system under control. But again, our preliminary estimates show that on the daily basis, our GDP now only half of uh, the you know of the normal uh, GDP uh, amount under the uh, peace uh, peaceful conditions. So definitely, it will put a huge strain on our public finances, on the also on the resource of the central bank. And definitely, we need uh, the support of the global community to to keep our uh, to keep our finances uh, viable and uh, to support yeah. us in our fight against Russia. But uh, it's very difficult now, you know, to uh, account how many uh, billions of dollars, how many. Uh, probably hundreds of million, billions of dollars we will need again after the war to, uh, uh, to, 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 to restore yeah. our economy, so rebuild you, our economy. Yeah. How do you even begin to do normal central banking in such an abnormal time? How do you even assess the economic damage and even hold meetings at a time when things are so in flux? You know, actually... That was uh, that we already eight years from the start of the military uh, conflict with the Russian Federation, and definitely we had some business continuity plans how to deal in the case of the um, direct military invasion. Uh, all the time we consider it such scenarios as uh, to be of low probability, but unfortunately this low probability realized. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, so we, uh, I suppose that we were more or less prepared even for such, uh, right. for such uh, scenario, and we continue to do our, our work uh, in these conditions uh, as much effective as it's possible. Sergey, you wrote a paper in another time and place, 2019, on monetary transmission. I want you to tell me what the currency will do, not only the Rivna, but what ruble will do. As ruble weakens, do you just assume that Russia bombs itself back to a barter economy? Uh, you know, uh, definitely uh, the monetary, monetary transmission, even described in my paper, does not work now. So we don't want to play these games and uh, like Russian central bank does, and we don't think that the key policy rate nowadays it's uh, an effective instrument. So we just suspend it to consider the uh, our monetary policy and uh, as uh, conducted by under the inflation targeting regime. We, we suspended to consider our policy rate as the main instrument. So now we, I would say, so we do, we manage our financial sector, we manage our economy via monetary instrument, instruments uh, almost manually. As an economist, Sergei, what do you make of the financial warfare that Western nations have really been waging to try to isolate Russia? Do you think that when we look back in history, it will be considered a success? Uh, you know, probably the unique situation uh, nowadays that uh, um, uh, the unique uh, situation is uh, that, uh, you know, you hit the Western world, nowadays hit the economy 
which used to function in completely normal market conditions. I mean, uh, market conditions, normal market conditions in the economic uh, sense and also for the financial system. We used to live uh, uh, in the Soviet Union, but uh, and that, which was, was was also isolated from the Western world. But at that time, you know, so the, they were uh, uh, that economy. That economy was, you know, was built from the beginning on completely different grounds. Nowadays, I suppose that this hit to the economy, which was really integrated in the global economic and financial world, so it's uh, really massive. And uh, frankly speaking, I expect really catastrophic consequences for the Russian economy and for the Russian financial system. Deputy Governor, I want to finish on something important, not just for your economy, but for the rest of the world. And I think it might help get people's attention. We've gone through the stats on this program that Russia and Ukraine supply more than a quarter of the world's wheat exports, one-fifth of the corn sales, and 80% of these sunflower oil cargoes. At some point, Deputy Governor, the farmers need to get back out into the fields and get back to work. Mm -hmm. Can you help us understand the amount of devastation we could see to those goods if those farmers can't get back into the fields and work in the next several months? Yes, so that is a very important question for the global economy, for, for, for the food security globally. Yeah, uh, Ukraine and uh, also Russia in some extent that are very, very important uh, suppliers of the wheat, uh, of the corn, or of the oil uh, seeds and uh, sunflower oil to the global markets. And uh, I, uh, I, hope that, uh, I hope that this uh, military invasion will be uh, suspended very fast and our farmers will be able to uh, to have the normal i would say agricultural year this year otherwise uh, i uh, i'm afraid that uh, the i'm afraid that the even global consequences could be very 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 tough could you help people understand what that would look like deputy governor if this wasn't dealt with quickly enough and this went into the summer. I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not able to provide you any estimates at the moment. And you know, currently we we, we try to do our best to secure the uh, to ensure the function of the payments in the country and uh, secure the financial stability in this environment. So uh, probably we will, we will we have to do such calculations and to uh, in order to understand how the world will you know live without the supply of this uh, food stuff from uh, from ukraine well let's hope sir it doesn't come to that deputy governor thank yeah, you yeah. so much for your yeah, time today much. and our thoughts here at bloomberg are with you all with the people of ukraine and with you and your government and the central bank this morning Sergey nikolaychuk there the deputy governor of the bank of ukraine thank you sir thank you very much get right to it. Lisa Mario Gabelli joins to say he's co-investment officer for value at Gabelli Funds, barely describes his contribution to investment finance in America. And we do make note of long ago and far away, Mario Gabelli used to write 12-page sell-side analyst notes on what's going on in the market. Mario, let's go there. I love your note of this morning where you say, look for M&A given all that's going on in American finance, and you speak of vertical and horizontal mergers and acquisitions. I love that. Describe. 
Well, Tom, uh, make it simple. Uh, we have a new regulatory regime in the United States. Lena Khan and others are looking at and saying, should a company that has 5% market share and a company that has 8% market share, should they be combined under the old HHF index without getting into the details of that because I don't know how to pronounce it. But basically what I'd like to see, the buyers of companies, the buyers of companies are strategic. For example, Cummins Engine decided to buy what I used to call Arvin Meritor, R Meritor. But on the same time, private equity is buying companies right. in the same industry, and that's Tenneco. So uh, is uh, what is Cummins doing? Is that a vertical integration into products that will then go into the products that they sell? Is it their customer pipeline? So that's as simple as that. Okay. Or today, for example, well-built. And from my point of view, you cannot have the government look at things in a linear way, the way uh, Aerojet was turned down. They are a producer of hypersonic uh, capability in this country, which is a major defense dynamic, extraordinarily uh, uh, good balance sheet. They've got a couple of hundred million dollars in cash, some excess uh, assets that they can sell off. Lockheed was trying to buy them, but they can't put $500 million okay. into R&D. Okay. They just don't have it, whereas it's Lockheed could do it. <clears throat> and we are, have to be prepared okay. for that Mario line of defense. Well, I, want yeah, to get I want to get Lisa Bramitz in here. Lisa, give me one short answer here from Mario Gabelli. Mario, you're flogging your book on television behind you, uh, Merger Masters. I mean, I know you need to sell a couple more copies uh, to make the month go. But Mario, if I look at Merger Masters now, when you wrote that book, yeah, get up and get the book. On radio, folks, this is, no, this is out of control. But, but Mario, seriously. You mentioned it. Private equity is in there right now. How does your world change that Steve Schwartzman is in buying companies? No, but they always do that, Tom. And basically, instead of just buying it, holding it, and then uh, recapitalizing and then spinning it in five years, they not only buy the company, Tom, but they basically then go in and add companies to what they're buying. And what that means is the following. If you're buying something today, uh, what ideal world, ideal world on a PE world is to buy something that has cash flow uh, minus capex at a multiple that five years or ten years you can sell off at no lower multiple and then yeah. uh, with interest rates changing. So that's what they do and they do it effectively and they're, they're raising significant amounts of capital and they're moving around. Yeah, but so any organization, and if Lisa is interested and in, uh, looking at putting private equity into their funds because they mark not to market, which is what happens daily to money managers like us, but they market, uh, uh, mark their portfolios to model, which means that institutions like the lag effect, the changes in the, in the stock market. Then what happens is uh, not complicated. Uh, you know, more money goes in. So what you want to do, you want to do is buy Schwarzman's company. You want to buy K Henry Kravis's company, KKR. So buy the PE firms. Now, in the public markets, there's one called uh, their public market stocks. John Malone would be a good example of that. Yeah. Another good example would be Warren B uh, Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Mario, I am very interested in all of the uh, different ways to formulate value. But at the same time, right this moment, a lot of people are trying to understand the parameters to input into these flip formulas. Where is the price of oil? Where is uh, the interest rate strategy? So when it comes to oil, as we're trying to game out commodities, how uh, do you even come up with input prices at this point? Uh, Alisa, when you look at the companies that reported earnings and the balance sheet, you basically have to look at the ecosystem. 
two years ago, in March of 2020, when we had a disaster in the market, when we had COVID impact, uh, basically the only thing that did well was govies and then eventually growth stocks. Buy growth based on a multiple of revenues and revenue percentage growth. Today, uh, you're having the market look at, let's say energy. I, as a buyer of related products, two years ago was cutting down on my inventory, cutting down on my CapEx because I needed to preserve my working capital and my cash. Today, I'm taking whatever I can put into my inventory at whatever uh, price I have to pay. And I need to understand LIFO accounting. I need to understand FIFO accounting. You know, we're dusting off a lot of old yeah, methodology. Yeah. Forget that part. Energy, oil, we as a country they forgot about it as a strategic element, even though you had the Sunnis and the Shias fighting forever and you had all sorts right. of di- those dynamics. And it was a bad policy. They failed in transition. We all want, we all want renewables. We all want uh, solar, wind, uh, hydro, but we need tra- transmission. We need well, storage. And it's not coming. It's bad policy. Okay. Mario, we're out of time here, but you're going to continue on radio. Mario, on TV for radio, I need you to hold up Mergers and Masters again so we can move. Put, hold the book up right now, Mario, so we can move this a couple written, comments. Uh, this was written by uh, Kate a, a colleague of mine on Barron's for 35 years. Yeah. It's and, a great uh, book. Great book. Yeah. It, it deals with how to make money when a romance is announced. In other words, company A wants to buy company B. Right. And it also tells you how the investment bankers, the lawyers, Tom, and uh, the arbitrageurs work in the process of yeah. doing this. And, uh, you know, it's a good discipline for someone that has mathematical background, has common sense. Yeah. And wants to make money over 30 and, and, years. And we're going to wrap this up and go to the headlines, Mario. But all I'm going to say, folks, is this is a grown-up book for Global Wall Street. And if you're on Global Wall Street, it's a single best book on the machinery of Gabelli's world. Mario Gabelli. A quick brief now from Neela Richardson, chief economist at ADP. I'm sorry, Neela, I say automatic data processing because I'm a fossil. Uh, Neela, we do have U.S. economic data. Does it signal a buoyant economy or are we truly in some form of slowdown? Well, we're going to slow down from last year's high pace. We are a healthy economy. Uh, I think we continue to grow robustly, but we are an economy that has the absence of a high degree of federal spending and monetary easing that is going to fade away. So, yes, healthy economy uh, and those jobless claims are another good sign uh, how far we've come in the labor market. Uh, But we should see some slowing growth and the real battle now. The real, the real issue now, not the battle, the issue now is inflation. And inflation that is only getting hotter as we see commodities surge the fastest pace going back, at least by one measure, to the 1970s. How much do you expect wages to respond to this, to the upside versus actually uh, people coming back into the labor market in order to get paychecks in response to this inflation? Well, we really saw inflation accelerate in the fourth quarter. And the interesting thing about it is that inflation, uh, in terms of inflation rising for wages, wage gains in the fourth quarter, what was interesting about it is through most of the recovery, it's been the low pay sector that's seen the high wage increases, right? So those people who are making lower wages, those wages were increasing faster. Now we're seeing a bit of a flip in our data. We're seeing those industries that 
are correlated with high pay jobs, information tech, finance, professional business services really accelerate. And that might not only show uh, wage inflation, but wage disparity between uh, people who can deal with inflation a little bit better and the higher incomes and people who are still struggling. So to your point, getting people back into the labor force at a time with very high price levels is really important. So as we, as the Fed looks to contain inflation, it's really important that the jobs recovery continues because it's not quite complete yet. How do you even begin to game out the ramifications of $130 a barrel oil? $150 a barrel oil as we talk about that on this bifurcated recovery of the haves and the have-nots, as you've put it? Well, let's just talk about getting to work. (laughs) Where most of Main Street sees those higher oil prices is at the gas pump. And so if transportation costs accelerate, we already know that housing costs have accelerated, childcare costs have been high through the pandemic and were already high before. It's really a a material uh, concern for Main Street families and for working families. And we know that energy prices spill over into other goods and other inputs. And so if you add on accelerated energy prices to what is already uh, supply shortages and the, the great interview you just did pointing to the effect of both energy and agriculture and perhaps food prices, you're seeing that for people who are still trying to work their way out of this pandemic economically, uh, headline inflation is a big concern. If inflation is entrenched, Neela, do you look at top-line inflation? Does the core and all the fancy economists like you, do all those fancy inflation measurements drift away, or do they become more important? You look at the consumer, because the consumer is looking at headline inflation. The consumer is going to the grocery store, they're seeing the milk, and they're seeing the bare shelves. And so the consumer's expectations are going to feed inflation over the long term. The good news is a year out, we're seeing high consumer inflation expectations, but three to five years out, they start to decline. That's the trend we want to keep. So I I think that fancy economics has its place, uh, but also going to the grocery store and watching the consumer uh, at the gas pump and at the grocery store has its place too, particularly in this environment. It's getting expensive, that's for sure. Nita, thank you. As always, Nita Richardson there of ADP. Within all of our reporting, it is not just oil, it is a complex story. Joining us now, thrilled to bring you Dari Kanyi's portfolio manager and head of commodities at DWS with years of experience on the up, the down, and right now the very up, up, up on commodities. Darway, these are not financial instruments. What is the media coverage missing about the fact that aluminum or wheat have huge fixed costs in their production? What are we missing that these are not the usual liquid instruments we're used to? Good morning, and thanks, Tom. That's a wonderful question. We do see significant price impact across all commodities. However, there is also a human element to all of the price. We tend to forget as market market practitioners that uh, we focus on price and return, but alumina is used for industrial uses, and many countries depend on aluminum as an input. Uh, to help keep the factories going and help keep the workers employed. Wheat is an even bigger issue. It directly links to food security. Both 
Ukraine and Russia are large exporters of wheat, in particular to areas like Northern Africa, mm-hmm. um, Central Asia, Middle East. For these countries, they are going to experience very sharp price inflation. Should the conflict escalate from here and interrupt the production right. process for wheat, mm-hmm. we might see even worse, such as well, food shortage that could lead to significant civil unrest. This leads to the microeconomics of the moment. How do you define, as a portfolio manager of great success, how do you define demand destruction? Demand destruction really comes in a, a couple of different ways. One is if the price gets high enough, for example, if the gasoline price gets high enough, people may choose to drive less, travel less, to save money so they can afford other goods. So it's the one way to see that. It's more uh, impact on lower growth rate assumption rather than uh, completely replacement. There's a second type of uh, demand disruption comes in the fact that people could find alternative uh, energy, alternative energy shift from gasoline-based cars to electrical cars. Uh, in US in particular, that will have a very big impact on energy price. A lot of people are long right now, and the price shift we've seen, the dislocations we've seen, when we think about what a hedge is, what a hedge is is not what a hedge was a month or so ago. If we got a headline that basically said we had a ceasefire, I'm just wondering, when you look across your portfolio, how you've hedged that, Darwin, what kind of instruments you look to, what kind of trades you've got on? Well, there are two things we focus on. One is, outside of oil, what are other commodities that have more long-term impact given the current environment. And we think base metal, um, which is currently uh, behind the other uh, commodities in terms of the price elevation, we think that's actually a great way to hedge the portfolio because we do anticipate China to continue to improve the credit uh, for the uh, economy and that will help with demand on base metal regardless of the energy. Performance. The second thing we are doing in our portfolio is to think about having more deferred exposure in our fund. Um, the back end of the curve, and let me use a more plain language, the later delivery of oil, that particular price is not moving up nearly as much as the prompt, the near delivery of oil. We think at some point the two prices will even out. And that's why we are thinking very hard about uh, shifting some of our exposure to the deferred uh, we've, exposure. Darwin, we've been talking about whether uh, sanctions will matter for commodities markets. They've already priced in a lot of self-imposed sanctions by a lot of commodity producers and, and importers. What's your sense of how much further prices could climb if the uh, sanctions are written in name without the carve-outs for oil and metals? So uh, for oil brand, for, as an example, uh, our target right now is $130 if there's no change to the current level of conflict. If there's direct impact um, on delivery, Russia's ability to deliver out oil, uh, we can easily see 150 or more uh, for oil price because Russia accounts for a very large part of the global de- uh, supply. Out of the 11 million they produce, over 7 million comes out of the country. So if that's to be interrupted, we can see significant impact. It's just no easy solution to replace it. Uh, for the other commodities, for wheat in particular, uh, that's a concern because if we see disruption for Russia to deliver, they are one of the biggest producers in the world, biggest exporter. And Ukraine's already uh, experiencing humanitarian concerns. So we don't really know if Ukraine will have the same ability to produce wheat and corn, both 
at the same level as they have been in the past. So uh, there's really no easy solution for that. That last point there is just going to be such a big deal for global politics, particularly in Northern Africa, as you pointed out. Dawei Kung there of DWS. Dawei, thank you for taking us inside the portfolio. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.